Nelson Mandela once said, No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Welcome to the Tweets and Tonic podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Asbury. Political hot topics are intertwined in every aspect of our lives from your streaming channels to your favorite sports teams and even in your pulpits. If you are looking for a cultural commentary on those infamous 280 characters brought to you by the Little Blue Bird, pour yourself a drink because this is the podcast for you. The way our show works is that we will take 10 tweets and break them down and share our thoughts and opinions. Today on Tweets and Tonic, my guest is Faith Brooks. Faith is a social worker, advocate, and podcast co-host for Melanated Faith. She engages in community organizing and activism. She is the director of programs for Be The Bridge, an organization specializing in racial literacy. Her faith fuels her passion for advocacy and seeing all people as image bearers. In her spare time, Faith loves to write, travel, and spend time with family. You can learn more about Faith at Faith, F-A-I-T-T-H, brooks.com or at faith b across social media platforms all right faith thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me i'm super excited all right well let's kick it off i have quite a few tweets from you yourself the words of wisdom you're dropping on twitter (laughs) so for the listeners i really want this conversation to be a learning point for us and i told faith before this i just want to be a sponge i want to learn everything i can so i hope you all are doing the same but i'm going to kick it off with one from you you tweeted you know what's beautiful boundaries saying no protecting my peace so let's talk about boundaries it's obviously a hot topic these days Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think they're so important? I think boundaries are important because we all know ourselves better than anyone else and we have to live with us. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's so easy to sacrifice your personal like preferences, what you desire, what you want for other people. And I know I love serving. Like if I can help somebody, I want to help them, whatever I can do in any capacity. But at the same time, like I learned that, man, like sometimes I'm sacrificing my own personal happiness or something that I really want to do for somebody else or for family. And in order to not do that and also not resent those people, I have to be the one to say no. I have to be the one to have boundaries and say, hey, that's just not going to work for me and be okay with saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me this. What are some things you want to say yes to in 2020? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I am always going to say yes to more travel. I love, love traveling. So traveling is one of my favorite things to do. Um, And I'm going to say more yes to more personal travel because we get to travel um, for work quite a bit, which is a lot of fun and we have a good time. But I love vacationing. Like if I can just put myself on a vacation and rest, unplug, like, and I mean for real, unplug. No um, internet. You can't reach me. Like, I'm going on a cruise. I'm really excited. I'm going on a a cruise, and 
um, in the beginning of the year. And I'm so happy. I'm like, I'm not even going to buy Wi-Fi. Like, I don't want Wi-Fi. I just yeah. want to be in a place to where I can think, where I can dream about 2020. And yeah. I think my biggest yes is to saying um, yes to me in those moments of slowing down because I can go, 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 go mm-hmm. and work and work and work and work. But then I end up like having these moments where I'm missing my own, um, I'm missing like my own points of like being able to really like dream for me because I'm yeah. spending so much time dreaming for other people or I'm yeah. spending time, you know, taking care of everybody else. So yeah. that is what I'm looking forward to the most. That is, um, that sounds amazing. Um, so what about the nose? Do you have some kind of process or internal guiding light that leads you to your nose? Mm, that's such a great question. I would say yes. I, I have, first of all, you all, we all, I think a lot of us have like a feeling inside where you kind of feel like, nah, yes or no, like, mm-hmm. um, and then I think that, I also kind of just kind of have like a priority list in my head, right? So there's a few people in my life, friends that I that I want to cultivate those friendships. Um, and so I have those kind of things in my in my head of like, okay, I'm going to do this with these people, or these are the people that I'm going to focus on, or I'm going to make space for new people. Um, but anything outside of that, like anything that's very like, hey, I just want to, if I'm just going to be running around doing a lot of little aimless stuff, like... I'm not going to do it because I know that I'm not in the place where I have the capacity to do those things. I don't have the capacity to do a lot of little random stuff. So I want my yeses to be very strategic and my no's. If it's like something that I know is going to take up a lot of time or somebody's invited me to something, I really don't want to go to it. Um, And it's probably not a person who's on that list of like, okay, I need to make sure I cultivate that friendship. I'm not going to do it. And I'm just going to be okay with saying, hey, I can't come. And You know, it would be great maybe next time, but I just can't do it this time. That's awesome. It takes courage, too, to say no. It's hard. It's so (laughs) So hard hard. to say no. And, like, I've, like, I would have, like, years where I would just run around, do everything. I want to say yes to everything and yes to everybody. But, like, by the end of it, I was so tired. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I heard something one time that was said, um, something about saying each no you say could be saying yes to the best thing that you've been missing. Yeah. And I, uh, I try to remember that, but that is, it's a tough lesson. Um, the next tweet I had from you actually really resonates with me. It's about community and my family just moved to Chicago area, mm-hmm. um, in May and it's tough. It's tough to be an adult and find community. Um, but it's super important. And that's one of the things you tweeted. You said, don't play yourself and think you don't need community. You do. Your people are necessary. So what would it look like for white people and black people to have true community? That's a great question. I think that in order for white people and black people to have true community, like you have to really see each other. Um, and especially white people being willing to like lean in, you know, with their black friends, um, Mm -hmm. and truly have meaningful relationship that doesn't have conditions. And I say conditions because, you know, we like, we all have our little things, right? And so, you know, you can have, especially as a black person, I know I've had white friends where it's like, I probably couldn't share this part of myself with them Mm -hmm. because, 
they might feel a certain way about what I have to say about race or whatever else the case may be. And those friendships are ones that I've had to let go of because I'm not allowed to bring my whole self to Mm -hmm. that friendship. And bringing my whole self means that there's going to be times where I'm going to be lamenting. There's going to be times where I need a listening ear. There's going to be times where I'm frustrated about what's going on. And in order to have true community in that way, Mm -hmm. um, you really need, like, you really need to have understanding from, I feel like, both people to be able to, like, lean in. And also, it it's taken patience on my part, right, with some of my white friends who want to understand and who are trying to understand. I don't feel the burden to be the, the master educator, per se, for them. Yeah. Like, I, they still have to learn on their own. But yeah. I can also be um, a safe place for those close people to me to have some conversations with and encourage them in different ways. And so I think um, in close proximity, that's what it looks like for me in community with some of my white friends still. And, and there are and that space for honesty um, to exist between us. Yeah. Um, one of the things my husband and I were recently talking about, and I was actually talking to him about this tweet, and he actually had a question. So I'm posing it sort of for him. But um, he was kind of wondering what your thoughts are around um, what you would say to somebody like him who actually feels like he's on a bit of an island inside his own community. Um He said that as a black man, sometimes he feels like he doesn't fall into the preconceived categories that either white people or even black people uh, put him in. Like, for instance, his example was he's 6'5". He's never played basketball in his life, you know, (laughs) and that people ask him that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was wondering, how should he navigate those waters where he feels like he's really kind of on an island in his own community? That's a really great question from him. Like, I know, he's what pretty he's, smart. <laughs> he is. He's really brilliant. He's thinking deeply. I know. <laughs> so I would say, and this is something that I've had to do too, um, and a lot of different friends who grew up in different ways, especially some of us who, um, you know, our parents, like my mom was in a school um, in Chicago, not my family's from Chicago, it's where I was born, um, and um one of her schools was like a recently integrated school um, whenever she was in high school. So it hadn't been integrated for very long. Um, And when you think about that and you think about our parents' upbringing where it was kind of like the go along to get along um, kind of era of of what we were going through in America at the time. And then also like my parents wanting to feel like, okay, like let's give our kids a a different life than we had. And so that meant that, we had community that was predominantly black, but then we were also homeschooled. And so we were in a lot of um, white communities and oftentimes some of the only ones. And so the narrative of our life, much kind of like your husband saying um, in a lot of different ways, looked different than what people expected of us. And it was like very uncommon at the time for there to be a lot of for there to be black families homeschooling, honestly, like our, even my grandparents thought my parents were crazy to like homeschool us <laughs> because they're like, what are you yeah. doing? Like yeah. what? But, and so, and they thought we were going to come out weird and all this other stuff, <laughs> yeah. which we didn't, but you know, just all the stereotypes that you get from that. Yeah. Right. And so um, there was a lot of ways that I, that I didn't feel 
Um, like I fit in certain spaces sometimes, even sometimes with other black people. But one thing I learned as an adult, and this is something I would say to your husband is, you know, and, and this is more and more that I see this happening in the black community, but black people aren't a monolith and our resilience and excellence and beauty and multifaceted nature of just who we are as a community is being celebrated all around. And so he's, not going to fit some of those stereotypes. And I would just say for him, like, continue to, to break the mold of what people think, you know, it should be like, or what people are assuming black people should be like, Um, you know, growing up, kids used to sometimes make comments or say, oh, well, you talk white. And sometimes black kids would say that to me. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, and I would just be like, okay, so like, what does it have to do with anything? Like yeah. my mom made it a really big point. It was just her family, the way even her grandmother, um, you know, was raising them was to talk and enunciate your words. Like we weren't allowed to talk slang at the house. That's just, it wasn't allowed for us and our family. And that's just the way that I grew up. And it wasn't any particular, like, um, we're trying to be this kind of people. It was just, this is what we're choosing for our family. Yeah. Um, and this is just how I want you to make sure that you're talking and that you're being polite and all these yeah. other things. Like that was just an upbringing thing. And so I think that there's room for all of us to be who we are um, in the black community. I love that answer. That was really awesome. Um, the next tweet is actually from Jamar Tisby. And for the listeners, if you're not familiar, he's a historian, a writer, and a speaker. He had an incredible book that came out this year called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Um, I definitely want to plug that, too, because we've loved that book. But he tweeted this week, uh, we often talk about reconciliation and justice as separate issues, but that framing is a mark of how much white standards have influenced our thinking. Oppressed people do not have the luxury of believing you can have reconciliation without addressing material issues of justice. It's a mouthful, but um, I really want you to help me learn here. I know without a doubt that I'm never going to understand what being truly oppressed means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I'm not blinded by that. Um, but how should we be taking steps to address the justice issues that we're facing with and alongside the efforts of reconciliation? So that's a really great question. And I think for me, I love that he said that because so many people think, oh, well, you're saying reconciliation. You're thinking like kumbaya. Mm -hmm. We're just going to hold hands, sing around a fire, and it's all fixed now. Um, And that is definitely not um, what we're saying. And so I think um, when it comes to addressing justice, it's like kind of like you were talking about before we got started with your background in politics. You know, you know probably more than a lot of people about how much um, policy shapes and informs who we are, what we do um, in our country. And I think when we think about justice, it's it's about – you know, even like what we're dealing with our prison system, how our yeah. prison system is privatized, and a lot of them are, um, and how it's really a money maker. You know, how it really, yeah. um, like 
you know, like the new Jim Crow talks all about it, 13th, you know, all these resources that have proven um, and shown how injustices have continued to happen, how they've disproportionately affected communities of color. And those things aren't going to go away with just a talk about reconciliation. Um, We have to be active in our um, engagement. And something my friend Catherine Freeman talks a lot about is faithful political engagement and how the church can be an advocate in those way about how the church can actually, um, instead of like, you know, oh, let's just like close our eyes and just, we're not going to do politics. Like, no, politics affect people. And mm-hmm. it's really important for us if we want to be advocates, if we want to see change, that means we will in- have to get political. Yeah. Um, we will have to address injustices and so um and I think that is it doesn't even when it comes to addressing these things I think people can get so caught up on party um and then they just become paralyzed to addressing the issues at hand and we go nowhere um and I think we have to move past a point of being bystanders um and if you're saying man as a white person like I want to be involved in this conversation I want to be a part of justice well that means it's going to cost you something and you probably will have to get political you don't want to but (laughs) you're very likely you're going to have to get political in order to um in order to really like for us to make some progress in policy, we want, yeah. um, we don't just want in the church, we want to see people more informed in the church and for the church to be on the forefront of this. But MLK wasn't marching and advocating just for the church to integrate and for the church to have equality. It was for the country. It was for laws. It was for changing the course of what we have known things to be Um in our country. So it, it's not something where we just can say, okay, well, like as a good Christian, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna believe this now and fight my hardest to see, make some changes in my church, but I'm not gonna um, really want to address some of the issues that are happening systemically in our country that has continued to hold um, people of color back. And that doesn't make sense. I um, have never taken notes on this podcast yet. So if people hear me clicking, I'm taking notes because that was, that's so good. Um, let me ask you this. Let's let's dream a little bit here together. Um, what would reconciliation really look like to you in today's world? That is that is such a great question and such <laughs> a big, deep question. Yeah. Um, I think the short form of that of that question is that every person, regardless of who you are, what you look like, um, what you identify as, like you are treated with dignity and respect and there is equality um, for all the people in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously like in a very dreamy, dreamy world, um, uh, people have opportunities to advance where, you know, we are actually doing our job to to love our neighbors, to increase minimum wage, help people to have opportunities to provide for their families, um, you know, without having to work two, three, four, five, and however yeah. many jobs, just because yeah. the cost of living has increased so much and pay hasn't. Yeah. Um, so I think in a in a very dreamy world, the short form answer for me is everyone is treated with dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't it, 
honestly find it almost sad that that's our dreamy world, you know, right? dignity and respect. And we have to dream about that, but um, it's true. Uh, so one of the things you tweeted, you said, y'all history is important. I believe in scripture, but the truth is people need to know real U.S. history and gain a real understanding of our radicalized systems. Knowledge is power. Please read books. So yeah. tell me, what books should we be reading right now? Are there authors or bloggers that we should be following, speakers we should be listening to, besides you, of course? Uh, <laughs> give us some more. Give us a, a bevy of people we need to get into. Yeah, so there's a lot of great people I've interacted with um, online. So I already mentioned my friend Catherine Freeman. She's really great. Um, you can also look up Sharitha Eanes, or sometimes she's Stevens. It just depends on where you find her um, on Twitter or Instagram. Um, I'm trying to think of a few other people that I've actually really enjoyed lately. Um instead of my same, same people. Because <laughs> um, I have, like, a list of people that I normally, I normally like. I'm just like, oh, this person, this person, this person. Yeah. Um, oh, Judy Wu Dominic. I don't, if you don't follow her, she's really great. She has a lot of um, good insight, and um, she's just really a brilliant um, thinker. I like um, following Irene Cho, too. She's such a great person and super fun and Always has like a lot of wit. I love um, oh, I like what that. she has to say. Yeah. Um, and there's another writer, um, Tiffany Levon. She, that's her, um, she's Tiffany Levon on her website and I think on social too. I'm not sure, but she um, is a, an adoptee and she writes a lot from the adoptee perspective about um, her experience mm-hmm. and, um, and I think it's just so valuable because you really need to like listen to more adoptive voices. And so I've really enjoyed like her perspective and how she is processing the world and encourages other um, parents who've adopted and also adoptees to to really listen and lean into the conversation and understand more um, about perspectives from adoptees who are obviously like adults now with their own families and have more, you know, time and space to think and process their life and also share what it's been like. And, and hopefully my hope is, is that more people would listen um, so that that would impact children now who are in adoptive homes, especially transracial adoptive homes. And um, they will have an opportunity to maybe have a a bit of a better um, experience than some other adoptees did. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's something I think gets left out of the conversation a lot. And adoption is really big in my family. My mom and I have a cousin, um, we're all adopted and it's, it is a whole different voice and a perception and perspective that we miss out on if we don't include that voice. So that is, that's awesome. Um, and we'll link to all of these people in our show notes. Um, in the education system, obviously we learn history, um, to some extent in the education system, what could we do better by focusing more on in our education system in this regard? So I think in our education system, we really have to ask ourselves, like, who's writing the books? Yeah. Who, who are the people who've written these history books? Um, is it a diverse set of voices? Has it just been written by white people, by white men? Like, we need to kind of go back track here and ask ourselves, who have we 
allow it to inform our education, um, the children's education, and how can we make that more equitable? Um, my friend, another person who's great to link is, um, her name is Delina, and she created Woke Homeschooling, and she has a curriculum called O Freedom, and it's for like, I think I want to say like second through eighth grade or something, um, but it's a history curriculum, and it's written by a black woman. And she okay. is giving perspective um, to her families and people to learn more about history from, you know, think about that. I, first of all, I have never read or interacted with a history book written by a black woman when I was homeschooled. Yeah. Um, that just wasn't happening. There wasn't that, there wasn't yeah. that lens. There wasn't that opportunity in the bookstores and the places that we went to get curriculum. And so yeah. just the fact that there's an opportunity for, um, students to have that is so key. I mean, what I learned about history, Black history specifically, my parents taught me. Mm-hmm. We had to seek out extra resources or extra books yeah. just to make up for what was lacking. And I think we have to get to a point where we have parents actually speaking up and saying to the schools, hey, like, this is the curriculum, but like, I'm seeing some missing pieces here. And, yeah. you know, we, yeah. is this what we want to be teaching the kids? Um, But I think we haven't had enough of a collective um, call for accountability um, to our education system to see the needle move significantly. And so I think it's going to take more people asking questions um, and asking for a a more, um, you know, truly a more equitable, more accurate story and non-romanticized history to be taught in the U.S. um, because history is romanticized and that's why you have so many white people who are like, I never learned this in school. I didn't know. I, yeah. I like, huh? And it's, and so much of it has to go, it goes back to, well, like the history isn't taught accurately and that's why you don't know. And there's a reason for that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's amazing that that resource exists now, you know, um, I'm glad for kids like my son that that is out there. Um, Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about the church. Um, You tweeted, it truly grieves me that many from the church have been the ones who have attempted to silence me and shame me for speaking out. And in the thread, this was in reference to any time you talk about race on your Facebook page that conservatives ask you if you follow Candace Owens. Um, As a a recovering Republican, um, that grieves me too because... Well, a myriad of reasons. Um, Let's start here, though. What damage do you see being done to the church by men? Um, There's plenty of examples, but let's use Franklin Graham, for example, who are supporting President Trump with pretty much no qualms about his behavior or his his rhetoric or just him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What do you see from your perspective? How much... To me, it seems significant, the damage that's happening. But um, what do you see in that situation? I think for me, I see that what has obviously always existed on the inside of people has an opportunity to um, come out without consequence. Mm. Um. That's tough. (laughs) (laughs) So it's basically like, oh, wow, we're free to go back to saying what we want to say 
um, doing what we want to do and nobody's going to like, I'm not going to like have any consequences for it because, well, first I run this organization and X, Y, and Z, or I run this school. Um, and so I can say what I want to say. Um, I think it's really unfortunate um, that that is the case. I think it's done a lot of damage to the church and to those who are in the church who are very disenchanted with um, the way things that are, are going with the language being used, the rhetoric being used, especially when um, a lot of people maybe consider themselves like values people. Um, yeah. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm more morally, these are some of my things that I value yeah. and this is what I want and believe in. And, and a lot of that has gotten thrown out the window. And so um, I think that's posed a really big conflict for people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for like the Franklin Grahams of the world, I just think it's like, well, I'm free to I'm free to say what I want to say now. Um, And that's really unfortunate, but you've seen that happen more and more and more. And so it's just one of those things where, you know, for me as a black person, I just look at that and I'm like, okay, well, you know, (laughs) it's good to know. I mean, like, it's good to know that this is where you're at. Um, But at the same time, like, um, it, it has caused me, the election, all of that stuff, that has really caused me um, to have a, a new layer sometimes of complexity with church um, and complexity with sometimes maybe white people that I'm interacting with in certain spaces. Yeah. Um, and, and I say complexity in the sense of like, man, sometimes I wonder, like, do you really see me or would you really care about my life? Um, if something happened to me or, um, do you really care about the community? Because there were people that, you know, I interacted with or, or, um, grew up with in you know, college or just these different things. Cause I went to a small conservative college, um, and was very much raised in like the conservative world rhetoric, all of those things. Right. Um, and just to talk about this, to have this conversation, just to speak up for yourself, to talk about race, for me to talk to a professor and say, you know, this is my experience. I'm the only black woman in this classroom of 25, 30 students in here. And um, sometimes more, sometimes 40, however many um, at our little school, it was just like, I'm having to explain to you this experience. And I had a professor he was like, yeah, well, what, we're going to try to get people together. We'll have a conversation on stage and maybe talk about it at chapel. Do you think that happened? No. No. Um, they did not talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's this, it's essentially like in order for me to go along to get along, I would have to not talk about this. And I am at a point to where just because you are uncomfortable with what I want to say or have to say about race and racism, um, doesn't mean I'm going to stop talking about it because I'm uncomfortable, like mm-hmm. uncomfortable in life with how we are still being treated this way as black people. I'm still uncomfortable and not happy with racism and how that is still affecting our communities. So I'm okay with making white people uncomfortable because I'm uncomfortable. And I don't think that I I no longer hold the belief that in order to keep the peace, I need to be silent um, or I need to just deal with it. So, um, but growing up, that is what I thought. I just need to kind of keep it to myself or just talk to my black friends and then just deal with it. You know, I think it's, so the question I'm about to ask, I think part of the answer is in an, 
in America, we have this, this place of privilege because we do have, quote, religious freedom, right? But why do you think it is that the church attempts to meddle your message? You know, is it that point of privilege that, well, we've got religious freedom, so we can say and do and choose platforms and positions that we want, and even though we have separation of church and state, we can be as political as we want. You know, do you think that's it? Or, but why Why are they the ones that come first for what mm. you're saying? The church has never been on the right side of history when it comes to race, racism, all these issues. In fact, the church has been a part of building these systems. Mm-hmm. So because the church has been a part of building these systems and not tearing these systems down, there is talking points that has been passed down and passed down and passed right. down. Yeah. And if you're a black person who's been in those spaces, we all know there's talking points that you need to stick to or within um, or you're out. And um, I think that the church has always had a level and a hand in politics always yeah. because oh, yeah. the church has been a part of building these systems. And so there is no separation of church and state. Truly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's no true separation of church and state. Yeah, there's just a tax credit at this point. Exactly. And so um, I just think that we ha- we can't forget, like, this is why it's so important to know history. You know, I've had friends kind of like, you know, old people that I've known growing up, but kind of like throw different things my way, say different things to me. Um, and it's like, Almost as if they feel like I'm, I've gone wayward, like I've lost my way. Yeah. Um, and and it's like, no, like, you don't know true history. Like, if I ask you a question and I say, hey, why is this the way that it is? What's the history that links back to that, that made the church start saying this, that be- made it become that? Mm-hmm. Tell me, what is yeah. it? Yeah. And I get it. And then I just get a scripture sent to me. No, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. No, I asked you a historical question to you to ask you, why do you believe what you believe and you can't tell me? Yeah. Yeah. So another one you tweeted, um, showing you care and truly want to support people of color goes beyond social media solidarity. It involves personal development challenging perceptions and perspectives you've held on to addressing personal biases. Um, You're bringing the heat a little bit here on the social media, but okay. (laughs) Bring it on, bring it on. So I think there's a lot of people who'd say they're committed to doing the quote work. And I I would include myself in that number, but I can admit um, something I don't think a lot of people will admit is that I don't even always know what that work truly looks like, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, can you tell us some tangible, some things we can actually hold on to and steps we can take to do that work of personal development and challenging those perceptions outside of just saying, that's what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this goes for all, all of us, right? This is something that I've had to learn in a an expert at being black because I'm black. Like I'm an expert right. at, in, in my life specifically. So I'm an expert at being black in the world of faith mm-hmm. um, because that's my context. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other contexts I 
don't know about because it's not my experience. I haven't been adopted. Um, I'm not an Asian American. I like am not in, you know, any other ethnicity. Like that's not what I am. I'm not a first generation immigrant. Like there's so many different experiences from people um, in this country because we have such an amazing group of people who are here in America and we all have different stories. Um, and we have to take time to learn those stories. So obviously one of the first ways, and we always talk about this, is reading. You need to yep. read stories and perspectives of people different than you. That goes for everyone. It doesn't matter what you look like. We mm-hmm. all have, there's all stories of other people that we need to know about and learn about that are different from us. And we have to be open to hearing and listening um, in order to truly understand someone else's experience and context. Um, It's not just something we can treat casually uh, because if we really want to be people who fight for justice for all people, we like, we have to, we have to learn and that takes a lot and it takes, it's it's a responsibility of, of everyone. And so um, when I say it goes beyond social media, yes, have a diverse group of voices that you follow. I really, you know, have been trying to lean into um, hearing from more native voices and just sitting and yeah. learning, learning more from my um, Asian friends about culture and um, it, their experience in America and and even like just like your husband was saying perceptions there's you know so many Asian friends who have talked to me about the perceptions that people have of um, the Asian community and they don't identify with a lot of the stereotypes and what can I sit and learn from them so much you know so um, really putting myself around different people different from me to learn um, to read from to see on um all kind of different social media activists that are great to follow. Mm-hmm. So, so to really diversify those voices, but also like truly cultivating in person, real life friendships mm-hmm. with a diverse group of individuals, because that's how you will get more perspectives. Like one of the best things that I loved about being in Houston and being with all my friends is that we had this super diverse friend group. It was yeah. like, we had some black people, Hispanic people, um, Indian people, like we would just, and then we would all share in culture together. Like I learned so much from my roommate who is Indian and first, um, first, uh, actually second generation American or no first generation. Yeah. First generation. And so I learned so much about culture, about her parents, about her life. Um, and, it was just really eye-opening, and it also showed me how dumb I was, you know, in ways about, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, her culture. I would sit sometimes ask stuff, and she would, like, help me, but I was yeah. like, oh, that was, like, a dumb question, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's really, it's it's a vulnerable place to be, and mm-hmm. but you learn so much. You benefit so much by allowing yourself to get beyond yourself. Um, none of us are um, arriving. There is no arriving in this work, and so mm-hmm. I think opening yourself up to different perspectives. That's the, that's where the healing is, you know, that's where moving forward is. Yeah. You mentioned reading and you tweeted reading and education is great, but white people will never have the lived experience of people of color. I've seen white supremacy pop up in quote, woke white people often thinking they've arrived referring to other white people who don't get it as quote, those people. So, um, you know, I've been married to Aaron now for 
math on the fly. Five years. Five years. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I hope that's right. Um, and every day I learn something new that honestly, because of my place in privilege, I would never, never would have crossed my mind. And um, I'm thankful for those experiences. Um, I wish more people could have that. Uh, well, they can't have him, but other, you know, <laughs> other people. Other people. Um, what, what are some questions we can be asking to empathize more? And is empathy really the route we should be journeying down? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know if it's empathy as much as... So when I was writing this tweet, I have this conversation with my friend all the time about how sometimes woke white people can turn into being some of the worst. And I say that with love and grace in my heart, but truth, right? because it ends up being like, I know now and I've like arrived at this place. And so... I don't identify with them anymore. And white culture is very individualistic. So it's really easy for white people to do that and then just completely disconnect and distance themselves from the culture in general. Um, But I say, when I was saying that, it's like, they're not, the white people who don't get it, they shouldn't be those people Mm -hmm. to the white people who have now gotten it because you didn't get it at before. Yeah. You were once those people. Yeah, I remember where you came from kind of thing. Yeah, and and there has to be, I think, you know, just like we when we collectively mourn as Black people whenever somebody is, like, shot by the police or there's an injustice that's happening, white people need to collectively, I think, get to the place to where they're mourning over the fact that, you know, we still have a lot of ignorant white people yeah. around. And we yeah. need to mourn the fact that... We have allowed, like apathy has yeah. allowed, created this culture where white people can walk around without regard or thought about, you know, being shot or, or feeling scared or all these other things. And some people just don't care about the history. Some people just don't get it. And other white people should be sad about that. Like yeah. it should be a collective like man. It is upsetting that our culture isn't getting this. Mm-hmm. And we need to grieve that and advocate and believe and be a part of, you know, wanting to see an awakening happen amongst our people, you yeah. know. But because white culture is so individualistic, white people don't even view white culture as a collective. Like, mm-hmm. I remember talking to some people in my Be The Bridge group and I was like, tell me about your culture. And they would tell me about their family. And I'm like, no, 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 your culture, because there is a white culture and it seems like y'all don't know it, but we know it. And we can tell you all about how we move and walk through white culture. And so I think, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where, man, I got it now and I'm out. I don't want to deal with those people anymore. I don't, I don't want to interact with those people. And I'm not saying like surround yourself with toxic, crazy people. Right. But I am saying that you were once those people. And so don't forget where you came from and don't lose your heart to pull people out from where they are. Because if you can come out, that means that somebody else also has the opportunity who can come out of those systems and who has the opportunity to stop being racist. You know what I mean? So I just think that it's, it feels so like privileged in a way to be able to say that like, 
oh, like, I don't, I, I get it now. I can be done. And I even told a friend this. I said, y'all can be done with church. You can be done with all of these things if you're sick of those kind of white people. But we can't escape whiteness. It's all around us. Yeah. And yeah. you have the privilege to be able to escape and leave and go and do whatever you want to do. Um, but we can't do that. And there's still a need for people right. to go back and extend a hand to those people. Yeah. And it's interesting that you just said that because that really leads us into something else you tweeted. Um, you said, I'm glad that you know better, but you're still white and deconstructing white supremacy is a lifelong journey. There is no arrival. And don't forget that you were once, quote, those people, and they are still your people because you are still white. And I think that's a lot of what you were just saying. So tell me this. Um, how do you think we get to a point of understanding, maybe, between these two really separate, different journeys that we're on to where those paths could diverge? How do we... Is there a way we can get to a point of understanding how to make that divergence happen? So making that divergence happen amongst white people or between white people and like people of color? Oh, well, there you go. You are a podcaster extraordinaire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, dang, I want to say both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so okay, so if we're saying like the divergence of connecting those with like let's say let's just get let's just say the white people who get it, the white people who don't get it. Yeah, let's do that. Um, if it's when you're when you're talking about the white people who who have some understanding, and the white people who don't have some understanding, I think there's like several different lines of having those cross like ways of having those paths connect. Mm -hmm. I would say, however, um. There's a few things that I've learned. Like, everybody talks about race and justice in their own way. Like, I'm sure you follow a myriad of different voices, and everybody talks about it in their way that works for them or that they feel called to talk about it. Um, I personally have – I want to I want to speak the truth, and I'm going to be – you know, I have different modes and operations of how, like, I talk about it. If you get me on Twitter and you follow me on Twitter, I'm much more candid on Twitter than I probably am on Facebook <laughs> or other – like platforms. And that's only because Twitter is kind of like that place to have those conversations with people more so than, you know, your Facebook where, you know, it's all just going to be a dumpster fire and it's yeah. going to get really crazy, um, yeah. really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is a way of saying things to people. My whole point is there's a way of saying things to people that gives them an on ramp into um, thinking differently um, and to giving them perspective. And I think that sometimes like one friend, she's so great. She wouldn't even care that I'm saying this, but she was in my be the bridge group. And she used to be so she's a white lady. Like, I just want to tear it down. Like kind of like really going for it to white people. Like y'all just yeah. need to da, 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 like yeah. that was like not like <laughs> that was not helpful for people right. and they weren't listening they weren't listening because she was just like she was mad you know and I get it yeah. and so um and it's okay to be mad because there's been plenty of times where I was mad yeah. um but I think that there's a way when you want those paths to connect there's a way where you have to get somebody just their foot in the door to hear mm-hmm and, and then once you get their foot in the door to here, then you kind of start, you know, getting people into the car and then yeah. you, then you take them for a drive and you put on the gas 
you know, push the gas and you're going for it with them to really start educating people. But yelling and screaming sometimes for people doesn't work. Like anger sometimes doesn't really work to communicate a point to people. But I think that when you're talking about, especially to people, if they believe in God, like we are all like image bearers. Yeah. We are all human beings and we want to treat people with dignity and respect. And you might not see or know the facets of which our system, this political system, this constructed system works. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are the ways that I've seen. This is what I've learned. I was once there with you. I once thought the way that you thought. And this is what happened to me. I had this kind of encounter. I met this kind of a person. Um, and my perspective completely shifted. Yeah. Like, what if instead of trying to, like, force feed opinions and, like, you know, make pe- you're going to believe me or else. Um, what if instead of that, we were just brave enough to say, hey, look, I truly believe that I was so blinded by these things Mm -hmm. and I have now changed and learned something new. I want to share it with you. You might not, you might think I'm crazy. You might not agree. You might whatever, but what has happened in my life is so good and so transformational Mm -hmm. that I want to talk about it and I want to educate about it and X, Y, and Z. And so that's like a, a small on ramp that I would say I would do with like super close friends or family, you know, if you're white. Now, if it's these like fringes people and people at your job, like that's more of a different approach. But so many people ask me all the time, how do I talk to my family? How do I talk to these other people? Um, And I, and I think it's the approach of you've changed. Maybe you should talk to them about why you've changed. Maybe you should talk to them about what happened to you. You know, it's interesting when you just described that it reminded me of um, as a recovering Southern Baptist, it also (laughs) Reminded me of, you know, when you get, quote, saved in church and they tell you, go tell people about your faith and tell them what's changed in you to basically witness, you know, for the churchy word to them. That's that's what you're explaining. Let me tell people what's different in me. And um, that's an interesting correlation to me. Um, I like it. So something else you tweeted, um, and I hope I don't butcher this name, but as hashtag Angel Kyoto Williams stated, quote, white supremacy was designed from inception to defend capitalism. Of course, white people will want to pay you for educating them, but just remember, you can also defer to people of color. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's break this down a little. We've already yes. talked about how the education system doesn't, do our history and Mm -hmm. black history justice. Right. Um, I don't think, and I don't remember, it's been a minute since I was in high school, but (laughs) I don't remember ever learning about this from the point of what this says, inception to defend capitalism. Mm -hmm. But when you think about slavery, it's like, duh, you know, you know, that should have been the point of reference. How can we do better? What, how can we teach better? How can we look at this better and really see the root of this as more than just white people owned black slaves and really get to the inception of this? And honestly, how do we continue? How, how do we stop what we're continuing in that method? Is it, you know, equality when payment? Is it, you know, I think that, you know, 
this tweet says white supremacy was designed from inception to defend capitalism. I don't mm-hmm. think that stopped. I mean, that's that's still no. the same problem today. So how do we do better? What do we do? So there's multi layers to this. One thing that um, Angel was stating, and I tweeted about a little bit more, like at length, was essentially how because white supremacy was designed from inception to defend capitalism we still see how capitalism comes into play even um, in the um in the community of advocacy of those who are activists or maybe new newly woke white people who are like yes like i don't even think like that anymore like i'm educating people now and then it becomes like well now i'm starting a business well wait a minute hold on hold on hold on yeah there's so many yeah. black people, people of color who have been educating on this and educating on their context. And yes, you should want to go out there and talk to other white people and X, Y, and Z. But the point is, and the point that Angel was making is pay attention to how even white people wanting to be educated will more readily pick another white person to pay to educate them rather than a person of color who is talking about either, you know, their very context in this and um, in this community in the United States as a, as a person of color and their experience. And so there's still areas where white supremacy is still at work, even in that. And so, you know, it was kind of like a, a caution, right? A caution to some white people who are in this work to not build your, platform your whatever off of this like yeah you're trying to you can end up upholding the very system you're trying to dismantle yeah. through upholding capitalism like yeah. through building a business and a system off of sharing about injustices but it's yeah. the very injustices you want to tear down and so exactly. it's like a very fine line for white people to have to walk in this work of social justice because um, there's that tendency, right? Like you're talking about with the capitalism aspects and what can we do? Well, there's this tendency ingrained in society to kind of like take over and to kind of make profit off of things. And that has to still be checked even in the social justice arena because you can end up having a white person be an advocate, but then now I've started this business and it's now my bread and butter, but wait, how? Because you still have these other activists who might not get in those same rooms that you can get in just because of the color of their skin or others might not want to hear from them. And how can you leverage what platform you have for other people? Like how instead of thinking of it like, oh, I'm yeah, I'm so glad I got that whatever gig like, oh, wait, there's somebody that I've been following or somebody I've heard about that I know about. How could I open up the door for those people? How could I open up the door for somebody else to walk through something? Maybe um, this person might not have, you know, been known by this community to be even invited into this space. And so I think in our country, your broader question of what can we do about capitalism, um, you know, it's ingrained in everything that we do, right? You think, yeah. look at, think about all the, you know, the billionaires that we have and and how little, you know, the people down, 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 down on the totem pole are getting paid. And so, um, and I shouldn't even say totem pole because that's actually not a good reference to oh. say. Um, I was actually, this is just so, I'm so great that this happened because there's, I was reading and learning, um, and I think I saw this maybe on Instagram and they were doing like actual corrections on like 
words that have been taken from um, from Native people and how they've been like used as like phrases that we just say, but how it's like not accurate. It's not good to say. And like, we've just taken and exploited, um, words in our like American culture and context. Anyways, sidebar. I didn't even think of that when you said that, but yeah, that's, I see that. Yeah. So, um, but anyways, I just think that it's, um, capitalism dismantling that as a much broader conversation and, Um, but I think that we can talk about how can we dismantle capitalism in our, in our context, right. In the context that we're in and, um, do better there. Well, so that, I mean, you're totally setting me up again here for the next one. Um, you tweeted white supremacy is evil. And if you aren't careful, even in your attempt to be an advocate, you will uphold systems of oppression instead of tearing them down. Hashtag the evils of white supremacy. So this is something that, like, honestly, I truly worry about that sometimes in attempting to be this voice that does stand against white supremacy, that somehow I'm, I'm actually doing more harm than good. Um, one of the things that I always worry about is exactly what you were just saying in that in trying to be a, quote, advocate, I don't want to replace or squash your voice and other voices like yours. Mm-hmm. Um how do we navigate those waters to be this this vocal, strong, um, transparent advocate, but not replace or squash your work and your words? Right. I think that that's a really good question. I think that first, it's the motivation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Um, and if the motivation somewhere, you know, deep, 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 deep deep down inside is I want to be seen or I want to be recognized for this or I want to make all this money from this or whatever the motivation is that like ends up showing up somewhere in life and in the work that you're doing. And so I think you have to check your motivation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And then once you check your motivation as to why you're doing it, you have to make it a priority, Um, especially if you're in the social justice arena, like you have to really make it a a priority that I'm going to lift up and support, support, (laughs) support um, voices of color. Like I'm going to make it a priority to Mm -hmm. lift those voices up and to have, um, and to not center myself in the conversation. Um, because I think what can happen is you can start advocating, but then centering like yourself um, in this work. And so it can, you know, it can be, it can end up being like a more harmful than good mm-hmm. um, in a sense when it kind of moves beyond just the work to more of like, well, what about like my thing and my, yeah, yeah you know. And so I just think that, there's a lanes for everybody to run in, but there's nobody who can tell the story of people of color the way that people of color can. Yeah. And the way that, you know, you might see like somebody in Hollywood using their privilege, you know, how you've seen a few white actresses saying like, hey, you need to pay my counterpart, um, you know, co- co-star um, yeah. the same amount that you're paying me. Yeah. Instead of it being like a vast difference in pay, Mm -hmm. Um, all of these different aspects, like that's a way of like leveraging. um, But also like you're advocating for them to have 
what they deserve, right? And so if somebody's coming to you and they're like, hey, will you speak at this conference about blah, 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 blah? You could say, you know what? I have a friend, so-and-so, and they would be the perfect person to speak about that. Yeah. And offering those places and those spaces up. And um, and that's why it's like, that's why it's such a fine line, right? Because yeah. capitalism, oh. it's all about money. It's tough. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why I'm like, don't do this for the money. This is basically what I'm no. saying. Okay. Yep. This is what I'm saying to white people. Don't do it for the money. Right. Don't do it for the money. Yeah. This isn't a, doing this work. Like this cannot be about money for you. It yeah. can't be. It really just doesn't need to be about money. And so um, I think if you are doing this work, you need to do it under a person of color. Yeah. You really do. Like, you need to be able to learn from, submit to, follow the leadership of a person of color if you're a white person in this work. Um, But I I really, truly feel really strongly about the fact that this – uh, work isn't something where, you know, white people need to be thinking like, man, I'm just going to build a career off this. Ah, like I wouldn't necessarily encourage it. Um, and that's not to say that there isn't space for white people in this work, you know, and what we do with be the bridge, we do have some white people that work alongside us on the team. Um, but we all are serving the vision that, um, God has given, Latasha Morrison, who's a black woman. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is my first time having um, a black woman as like my boss and think about that. Like, think about the significance of that for me to work with another black woman and for it to really be the first time I've had a black woman as my boss. And um, I think that we, people need to count the costs and need to count what black people, so many other people of color have fought for in this country Mm -hmm. and not take that lightly. Man, that's big. Um, You just sort of talked about it, but one of the things we do on every episode of Tweets and Tonic is we highlight the work of companies that we and our guests believe are doing good in the world, uh, for-profits, non-profits. We don't care as long as you're doing good. And you mentioned Be the Bridge, which we have been honored to talk about before we I feel like almost every episode we have some tweet from Latasha that you mentioned Um, for your first uh, black female boss. You really hit a home run there. Um, (laughs) We, uh, we think she's amazing in our house and um, normally we kind of read a brief description of the company, but instead this time we have you. So will you tell us from your perspective, what be the bridge is doing in our country right now and what all are you up to and where can we find you online with that? Yes. So be the bridge. We are a nonprofit organization and we exist to empower people and culture towards racial healing, equity, and reconciliation. And so that means that we have the amazing opportunity to partner with individuals and churches and companies and organizations and talk about what does reconciliation look like um, for us and how can we educate? So we do a lot of racial literacy work. And um, for us, reconciliation does not come without justice, right? So right. Um, so that's a big focus of our work is really uh, giving people an on-ramp and an entry into this conversation. And then from there, we we kind of get people in and we do further education and, and deeper and a deep, like deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, as people right. want to go. 
um, into history. And we talk to them. We have a, an intensive that we call our whiteness intensive. So it's for white people. If you want to learn more about like white history and identity development and all these things, we have um, a team that works on that content. And so we have several different programs. We have B2B youth. So if you have some teens in middle school and high school, we do anti-racism training for teens um, in schools as well, um, as well as just equipping students so they can go back into their schools and have these conversations. Um, we have a program for college students called BTBU. So if you're in college and you want to have these conversations, we have content for you. Um, and in 2020, we are releasing our Be the Bridge Transracial Adoption Guide, which we're super excited about. A lot of adoptees have actually been a part of um, creating and writing it. So we're thrilled about that. And then we have a BTB POC. So it's a it's a guide for people of color um, and for us to have the conversations that we need to have together. And so um we have a lot of great content on the horizon for 2020, so people look awesome. out for that. Um, yeah. But we we really encourage having these hard conversations about race and racism in person. We have them online, too, um, yeah. through our Facebook group. But we want to encourage in-person relationships, and, and that's how we've seen a lot of transformation happening um, all around the world. That's amazing. Um, we are big fans here. So a little bonus content here. You've launched a podcast. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Tell us. Tell us what days does it drop. Tell us. Tell us everything. Okay. So earlier this year, I was mm, talking about this idea of having a podcast, and then it just turned into my friend Catherine Freeman and I starting this podcast called Melanated Faith, and we're basically talking about faith and culture um, from our perspective as Black women, and so we're going to talk about all kind of stuff like music and movies we like, black culture stuff, um, also singleness. We're both single career women and like, what does that look like for us? Um, and having those conversations, we're going to talk about relationships and dating. So all oh kind of gosh. fun stuff. Oh yeah. It's going to be, it's gonna be good. <laughs> so, um, we have a soft launch, um, that we've done this fall. So we kind of talked about Latasha's new book, um, be the bridge. And so we in there in our podcast, we actually went through chapter by chapter and discussed each one. So we did that earlier and they're super short. So y'all can go ahead and like, listen to those and get caught up. But end of January is when we're officially launching our season and our first season. And we'll be dropping episodes on Thursdays. So we're all over social media as Melanated Faith, and you can find us there. And we're really excited just to have these conversations, really candid, like you and I are talking now. Um, but also just want to give people a space to have fun and listen and engage with content that is thought-provoking. But also, um, we can have a little fun, too. Yes, I love that. I'm really excited to get more of that. And um, we're going to link everything in the show notes for sure. And Latasha's book is it's big and people really need to, to get it and just soak, just let it soak around you. But, um, Faith, thank you so much for coming on today. You, um, I told you before you have been at the top of my list that I was hoping, and you were so gracious to just be like, sure, when do we do it? How do we do it? And I was just floored. I was home in Arkansas for Thanksgiving and I was like, she said, yes. She said yes. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see what else you put out there. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love this. It's an amazing idea. So um, I'm just really thankful that you're doing this. So thank you for having me on. 
Famously, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And as a mom to a little boy who is biracial, I share that same dream. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. Cheers and go do some good.